Well, this morning, as we continue our series on the practice of prayer, we will continue what we started last week on this Pentecost Sunday. We will consider how we can learn how to pray for the nations, and we will hear updates and prayer requests about how to pray for those who are serving and seeking to serve the Lord among the nations, even in the midst of our church, um, some of our church members. But before we get to those updates and prayer times, I want to first share some thoughts and some scripture passages in relation to this theme and idea. I sent out in your home worship guides that the big idea of today's meditations is that God's gift of himself is what makes the good news good. We at Embassy Church repeatedly want to remind you all that we want to be the kind of Christians that are gospel-centered Christians. We want to center our lives around the gospel. We want our conduct to keep in step with the gospel. We want to preach the gospel to ourselves every day and to one another every week, and especially when we have Sunday gatherings or worship gatherings. The gospel is good news in part because of the gift of the Holy Spirit. And I don't know if you've ever contemplated this, but I've noticed in my own mind that even since Embassy has started and I have tried my best to be faithful at preaching the gospel, I don't think that we have preached false gospel. I hope not. But I do wonder if there's times where we're leaving certain key elements off including the things we've talked about last week, referring to the reign and rule of Jesus and what he's doing right now through his exaltation or ascension. Another aspect would be this celebration today through the Christian church of the giving of the Holy Spirit. So let me just ask the question this way. Do you think that the giving of the Holy Spirit is actually a central element to the good news of the gospel. Because I sense that a lot of times when we talk about the good news, we primarily focus on what Jesus has done, and there is by no means any problem with that emphasis. Part of what I'm trying to help us think about today is that the good news culminates in Jesus's ascension to heaven and then the pouring out of the Holy Spirit on the earth so that we have the application of God's very near presence. We get him. I love the way John Piper in his book says, God is the gospel. The best gift is God himself. All other gifts of the gospel are to take the barriers that were in our way so that we could not be with God. Let's even think about the simplest ways we can explain the gospel. The gospel is that God and man were at one point in the creation of the world together, united. They were one. Heaven and earth overlapped in one place and time and in moment in history. From our sin, our first sin, Adam and Eve, and since then we have been separated from God. We have no longer experienced the joy of his very near presence and our hearts and our lives in the material world is now all groaning because of that sin. 
And through the history of Israel, as God continued to give his very near presence to his people, we could see the up and down and back and forth saga that was the nation of Israel trying to handle and and deal with the holiness of God's near presence and that um, he gave them his law and he gave him his presence in the temple. But none of these things ultimately fulfilled the calling that we saw in the very beginning of man and woman bearing the full image of God and becoming this place where heaven and earth meet and dwell together in perfect unity. So then Jesus comes into the world as the perfect image bearer and the fullness of the Holy Spirit rests upon him and he lives a life that is full of perfect righteousness. He does not sin, never once, not in thought, in word, or deed. He dies on a cross for our sins and takes our place. He is buried into the ground. Three days later, he rises from the dead, and then he ascends to the heavens 40 days after his resurrection and pours out his Holy Spirit so that you and I can become new creation, so that you and I have the ability to repent and believe. In other words, the gospel doesn't become good for you and me until the Spirit of God transforms actual human lives, each and every one of us every day. And so I want to suggest that when we're thinking about the gospel, let's not just stop at Jesus dying on the cross for our sins. As good as that news is, and it is incredibly good news, that is a means to a greater end. We need our sins forgiven so that our relationship with God can be reconciled and restored. For any of you that have any strife in in your life right now, uh, if you've ever experienced the cold shoulder from a roommate or a friend or a family member or a spouse, and you know that you're supposed to be close and and intimate and personal, but then something gets in the way, that, that sin, that bitterness, that resentment, and, and the relationship's not the same until forgiveness brings you back together. The forgiveness is the means to an end to bring the relationship to, together as a restored relationship. And that's, in fact, what we see God doing in the gospel. So I'm going to read our first scripture reading in Acts chapter 2, verses 1 through 13, for us to just remember the very event of the day of Pentecost. So if you have your Bibles, let's turn them there to Acts chapter 2, 1 through 13. I want to make a few comments and then lead us in prayer. Here's the word of the Lord. When the day of Pentecost arrived, they were all together in one place. And suddenly there came from heaven a sound like a mighty rushing wind, and it filled the entire house where they were sitting. And divided tongues as of fire appeared to them and rested on each one of them. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit, and they began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. Now there were dwelling in Jerusalem Jews, devout men from every nation under heaven. And at the sound, this sound, the multitude came together, and they were bewildered because each one was hearing them speak in his own language. And they were amazed and astonished, saying, Are not all these who are speaking Galileans? And how is it that we hear, each one of us, his own native language? Parthians and Medes and Elamites and the residents of Mesopotamia, Judea and Cappadocia, 
Pontus and Asia, Phygeria and Pamphylia, Egypt and the parts of Libya belonging to Cyrene and visitors from Rome, both Jews and proselytes, Cretans and Arabians, we hear them telling in our own tongues the mighty works of God, and all were amazed and perplexed, saying to one another, What does this mean? But others, mocking, said, They are filled with new wine. This passage of scripture is uh, sometimes very challenging to understand what's going on here. And I think that's in part because a lot of times when we read this passage of scripture and a lot of the stories maybe in the gospels and in the book of Acts, we sometimes forget the genre of scripture that we're reading from. We might sometimes feel like this is just simply a historical biographical account. And what I mean by that is if you're reading this and you're trying to recreate the picture in your mind as if it was the author's video camera footage being recorded in written history. So so use that image. Is this video camera footage? Is this recording to you just every detail as it happened? Or is this a theological history? a theological history that is rooted into a larger story called the Bible or the Old and New Testament. Here's the simplest way I can try and explain this. When we were doing our our teaching on the book of Acts in our New Testament survey class a few weeks ago, I came across a study by Richard Hayes where he talks about the echoes of the Old Testament in the New. And when he was talking about this particular author, Luke, who wrote Luke and Acts, he said, Think about going to a theater where you go see a theatrical performance. And the first few um, scenes and the first few acts of, of the play, if, if it's like maybe a Shakespearean five-act play, for example, let's say that you, you're there and there's the backdrop on the theater. You know, when the actors come out onto the stage, they have artwork behind them trying to set the scene and take you into a world. So I want you to picture that the Old Testament is telling us the story of Genesis and Exodus and Leviticus and Numbers, and you go through all the various points, and you've got these characters like Moses and and David and 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 in the background, these characters are on the stage and in the background is, is the, the setting or the scene. When we get to the New Testament, the characters are changing. They're Moses and, and Elijah and David aren't, aren't there anymore. But now it's Jesus who takes center stage. And as Jesus is in the spotlight, sometimes when we read both the Gospels and the book of Acts, we're only looking at the characters. But what we're failing to realize is the broader backdrop behind Jesus. Behind Jesus is a revolving series of pictures from the Old Testament that if you had read the earlier parts or if you had seen the earlier parts of the play, you're like, wait, there's Jesus. But now I'm seeing him in the context of something that's really familiar. Actually, we were in this same setting or scene in in act one of the play or in act two. And that's the way the authors of the Bible are are often writing. They're telling you true events in history, but they're doing so in a very artistic and poetic kind of way. So when you read Acts chapter two, sometimes it can be hard to figure out like, is this 
video camera footage of what just really happened versus is this something that's being told to us with the Old Testament pictures and scenes in the background so that you can see the significance of the event. So let me bring this home for you. What's going on in Acts chapter 2 is there are layers of background behind the actual events of the apostles. We know that these men are in a room. That's what it says in verse 1. When the day of Pentecost arrived, they were all together in one place. Now, if you drop your eyes back to chapter 1, you'll notice in verse 14 that it says, All of these men were of one accord, devoting themselves to prayer together with the women and Mary, the mother of Jesus and his brothers. So, in verse 1 of chapter 2, we know that the disciples and some women and some of the other followers of Jesus... The number is about 120 at this point in terms of the general following of Jesus. This is by no means a world-changing, empire-shifting kind of movement. This is a small band of people. It's about the size of, you know, Embassy Church on a very full Sunday morning. 120 people at the most, right? And so here they are, and they're praying I want you to make sure as we are thinking about this discipline of prayer that you see a connection here in Acts 1 and 2 between people gathering, waiting, and praying for the presence and the Spirit of God. I think behind what Luke is doing here is the echo of Jesus praying. It's almost as if Luke is putting in the backdrop of his own story, one of his own paintings that he he made in the gospel of Luke when Jesus was baptized and when Jesus was baptized in Luke chapter 3 there was him praying and then the spirit of God comes down upon him and empowers him to be a witness to God the Father so that's picture number one in the background is Jesus praying and so too are the disciples praying just like he is. And then the spirit comes. Then in verse two, it says, suddenly there came from heaven a sound like a mighty rushing wind and it filled the entire house where they were sitting and divided tongues of fire appeared to them and rested on each one of them. And all were filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the spirit gave them utterance. So that of course is quite fantastic in terms of a, a, a scene to behold. But the background of that scene, you should start thinking to yourself, where does the presence of God get revealed as fire? Where does the presence of God get associated with loud, rushing wind? Well, the answer would be Mount Sinai. In the background here of this particular story, is God revealing himself to Moses and the people of Israel. And when that story ends in the book of Exodus, in the book of Leviticus, God's presence comes down on the tabernacle that God instructed them to build. And then it's fire that comes and fills the tabernacle. And fire comes shooting out of that tabernacle from the holy place. So where might we associate fire and the presence of God, and mighty rushing wind. Well, the Old Testament, these stories are clearly in the background as you see the characters on the stage. There's something more going on than just seeing the movie screen. He's trying to paint a theological picture that God is doing something significant. He is putting his very near presence, not just on the earth or in a temp or a tabernacle. 
He is putting his near presence on you and on me and on all who would repent of their sin and put their faith and trust in the good news of the story of God through Jesus Christ. This is way bigger and better than just, wow, there was tongues of fire on people's head. That tongues of fire has significance and meaning because of the whole story of the Old Testament. Let me give you one more backdrop painting. We could probably do this for the rest of the afternoon, you might guess, because there's many layers, I think, like an onion peeling back or many layers of these paintings that are just keep revolving with each verse. But look at the last half of this story. It says that there were in Jerusalem Jews, devout men from every nation under tongue, ethne, nation, every nation under heaven, there were Jews. So these are people that are of one people group. They're all Jews, but they're spread out because of the history of the Jews being dispersed from their exile. And so what we have is we have Jewish people coming together for this great holiday, three times a year, three big holidays, Passover and, and, and Pentecost and, and the feast of, of the day of atonement. I think those are the, the three big ones, Pentecost and Passover and the day of atonement. And you've got these special holidays. And so you've got people coming as if it was like this, this time for everybody to come together, like July 4th in Washington, DC, people coming together or something along those lines. And so they're all Jews. And it says that because they're spread out from all over, they all speak different languages. And then the sound of the multitude came, they were bewildered because now they were hearing one language. There was now a whole bunch of different people from different nation not not ethnic uh, religious ethnicity but but of different national ethnicity coming together and being brought to be one so this begs a question where in the bible do you know a story about people coming together and being confused because of language and if you've read the bible you'll know that it's genesis chapter 11 and so I'd encourage you to read Genesis 11, 1 to 9, and start noticing the similarities and the comparisons and the contrast. There's at least three or four identical phrases and words that are like hyperlinks driving you back to the story of the Tower of Babel, where people are one and they're unified together, but they're using that unity for the sake of idol worship and building a tower, which would have been a ziggurat temple to bring God down so they could control him like levers and, and say, God, we're in control. You're not. We are going to tell you what to do. And God was displeased with this. And therefore, he judged them and dispersed them. And then now they were confused and bewildered and they didn't understand each other. The story here in Acts chapter 2 is that God is reversing the curse of Babel. Instead of the judgment of God coming down from heaven, it is the blessing and the mercy of God coming down from heaven through his near, close, personal presence, bringing people from different ethnes, different nations, all speaking and understanding with one voice to glorify God, the Father of heaven. The implications for this are, of course, massive. First, we know from Acts chapter 1, that the Holy Spirit, look at Acts chapter 1, and then drop your eyes down to where Jesus says in verse 8, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, 
and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. I don't want to try and sound overly controversial here, but I do think that some emphases in the Christian tradition around the Holy Spirit miss that one of the primary ways that God displays his power through the Spirit is when you are witnesses outside of the church and outside of the prayer closet. Too often it seems as if manifestations of the Spirit are when we come and do something in worship. Oh, that was spirit-led or spirit-empowered. And of course, all worship is. We just read that in John chapter 4. But I want to make sure we're remembering today that the reason Jesus gives for for the Holy Spirit, the fruit of the Spirit, will be witnessing. It will be displaying the power of God to the nations from Jerusalem to Judea to the ends of the earth. There is very much a missional thrust in the giving of the Spirit. The greatest power I think you will see in your life is when you are advancing the kingdom of God and the heaven reign and rule of God on earth as it is in heaven. When we pray that and we see it come to fruition, that is God's Spirit at work in our own individual hearts, in our families, in our communities, and and to the nations. So one clear takeaway should be that if we are being led by the Spirit, the Spirit is always going to guide us to the lost, to the broken, to those who are outside of the church. Second implication, the Spirit of God unifies and brings together people that were once divided or separated, and the Spirit of God brings together different tribes, tongues, languages, and nations, and that is ultimately fulfilled when the Great Commission is fully accomplished and Christ is restored. And so in the meantime, the task of the church is not finished. The mission is not just to go out and be witnesses, but especially to to bring unity and oneness and clarity where there is division and discord and disagreement. So on this particular Sunday, Pentecost Sunday, on May 31st, 2020, What's the first thing that pops up when you read the news headlines? I did this this morning. I popped open the news headlines and the first thing is continued stories about riots because of racism, because of prejudice, because of violence, because of white and black and police and Black Lives Matters. This is what's going on in our world right now. And if there's ever a time for you and I to be reminded that there is good news in a world full of brokenness, let us be reminded today that the Spirit of God is here. He is available and he is present and we need him desperately in this hour that we are living in. The Spirit of God brings the curse of Tower of Babel and takes the various people that are spread out and brings them together and, 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 and takes those gods of this world and the lowercase g gods of this world, the spirits of darkness that are dividing and discouraging and, and, and leading our nation to be full of all kinds of division and discord. Even the church itself is divided on this. I don't know if you've tracked with this theme of of racial reconciliation, but there has been tons of issues over the last five years or so between these stories that are coming out. And it's not so much, I think, the issue of these particular events that are so tragic to me. To me, what is so tragic is the way that Christians who are calling on the name of Jesus are responding to these stories. It's creating even further discord, further disunity. And so, 
I want to encourage each one of us today to remember that our calling as believers is to bring peace and unity and love and to give patience and to not so much seek to be understood as much as to be those who seek to understand and to be those who try and seek to love and pray. And so I want to ask each one of us now to, to reflect and think, if now is not a good time for us to pause and look at what's going on in our present situation with COVID-19 and with violence and with riots, when is there a better time for us to pray prayers of lament as we've talked about in this COVID-19 season? When is a better time for us to take up the discipline of fasting and say, my heart is grieved. My heart is sick when I read the news again. Where, where are you, God? Is there hope? And with that in mind, I think it would be good for us, before we move on any further, let's just stop and pause and pray. Let's pray a prayer of lament, a prayer of confession, and a prayer of petition as we ask God through his Holy Spirit to bring us to greater love and unity and fullness of his presence through the Spirit. Let's pray together. Our Father in heaven, we want to pray now in the name of your Son, Jesus. We want to pray that he would yet again send us the Holy Spirit, that we would be filled with the Spirit, not drunk with wine, but intoxicated with the very presence of your love and your law being poured into our hearts. Father God, we pray now and we, we lament. We struggle and we wonder, why? Why is all of this going on? Why is the church so divided? Why is it that any time racism is brought up, there are people who are struggling with the church not saying enough and other people who think that the church is saying too much? God, we're confused. God, why is there the struggles between the police and different races and ethnicities? Lord, we need you. We are desperate for your help in this time. We don't know the answers. We're lost. We live in a world full of sin and brokenness and it hurts. And so, Father, we want to pray for specifically the Floyd family, for peace in Minneapolis, for protests that are becoming violent. We want to pray, God, that there would not be violence as a solution to violence. As your word says, may this not be a chance for the world to repay evil for evil, God, but may there be those that would take up the banner of, of repaying evil with good and, and heap burning coals on the heads of those that continue to persist in violence and prejudice and racism. Lord, we want to pray for police officers that just recently got fired, one of them who was arrested. 
We want to ask, God, that justice would be served rightly, that you would give wisdom and counsel to all of the officials that are involved in these decisions, and that it would help your righteousness here on earth be as it would be in heaven. Lord, we know that there are people in our own community, minorities, from different ethnic backgrounds that will feel fear, that will wonder, might this happen to me? And we want to pray, God, that you would give them a sense of hope and confidence that your spirit is alive and here, and that they would find comfort in your spirit, that they would find comfort in your presence, that they would find believers in Christ that will bring them hope and encouragement and comfort. Lord, we want to pray for the law enforcement officers those in general, that we ask that they would have courage, that they would show restraint, that they would be faithful in their calling. We pray especially for Chad Benavidez, who's working at Elgin Police Department as a member of our church. We ask God that he too would serve in this community faithfully. Lord, we want to pray for our society's divisions, that they would be healed, that we would feel and experience the uniting presence of God, where there is one faith and one Lord and one gospel, one baptism, and that the church would not be a place of further division and discord, but the church would be the model of what it could look like for God's presence to be here on earth and bring unity, that we would be godly like you are godly, three in one, Father, Son, and Spirit in perfect harmony, not one superior to the other, but each equally of value and dignity and worth and rank. So we pray, God, would you give us wisdom and balance and patience? Would you bring justice and security and due process? Would you protect our freedoms of speech and our right to stand up for what we believe is, is true and good and, and help us as a people to do that in a way that honors you? Lord, we confess that some of us are indifferent. Some of us might not even realize what's going on in the world. Some of us are, are not even praying and thinking about these matters. God, for some of us, we don't realize the pain that several African-Americans in particular and those of minority culture are feeling as they hear the news. Lord, I pray that as a church family, we will grow in our ability to show empathy. Forgive us for the ways that we're blinded and that we are not seeing the full picture. Lord, help us to be those who are quick to listen, slow to speak, and slow to be angry. We confess, God, that it is easy for us to rant or to make comments on social media that prove not to be very helpful. Lord, we want to pray that our words and our actions would be pleasing in your sight and that we would have a desire to send people to the nations and that the gospel would spread forth and that the church of Jesus Christ would care about all peoples regardless of their skin color or the language that they speak or their nationality that they come from. Lord, we're asking desperately that it would be that sort of humility of the Spirit that brings us to the cross and helps each of us see our brokenness and our sameness, that each of us are in need of the gospel. And we pray that you would do all of this so that you would get glory, that Jesus Christ and the work that he has done would be magnified. 
and that you, Father, that you would be honored. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.